0: You start. Hello, Ash. Hello, Ian. How are you? Oh, I'm top spiffing. <laughs> top spiffing? Is that a thing you can be? I I, I don't know where, where that came from, really.
1: Uh, well, you know, it's a good start. It's not a, it's not a dour not so bad.
0: <laughs> That's true. It's a very British response, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Bearable. Bearable. <laughs> yes, I've just won an Olympic gold medal. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> it's never going to happen. <laughs> no, I'm just very excited because of our five star review.
1: I was incredibly excited when I when I found it. I messaged you straight away. I think it was the first thing I did.
0: Yes, yes. I, I, I it was. We were swept away on a giddy tide of, of delight. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's not every day you get a five star review for something you've created.
0: No, that's true. Huh? That is true.
1: And the internet can be a harsh place, Ian.
0: That is also true. There's
1: a lot more people who would give you not a five-star review than who would give you a five-star review.
0: Yes, and that's quite likely to happen if you make a terrible, 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 mortifying error when you're recording your podcast. And who would do that? Well, as it turns out, me.
1: Not again, Ian. What
0: do you mean, not again? <laughs> you can't say that. This is my first error ever. error? have been perfect up to now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember last week when we were talking about the state of DevOps report? Platform teams? It wasn't last week, was it?
1: No, it wasn't you've made a you've made like a reverse estimate there <laughs> Do
0: you remember last time <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: when we were talking about the state of DevOps report?
1: Platform teams, I think it was, wasn't it?
0: Yes, yes, it was. And I was very much taken with the fact that a post on Martin Fowler's blog was worded extremely similarly to the uh, words that you had found for description of a platform team.
1: And why was that, Ian? Can you remember why that was?
0: Why they were so similar? Mm. I just remember finding it amusing that they were so similar. Why why were they so similar? Because the same person wrote both of them. (laughs) Okay, that's why. So Martin Fowler's blog is a rich environment, richer than I had suspected, in that it (laughs) contains words that come not just from Martin Fowler. And on this occasion, the blog post in question was not written by Martin Fowler. And I, to my embarrassment, I read it too quickly and didn't pay attention to what it actually said on the page. So sorry, Evan Butcher. And uh, thank you, (laughs) Manuel Pays, for pointing that out on our LinkedIn post.
1: Credit where credit's due. Very important.
0: Yes. So obviously, we're very keen to hear about anything we say that's wrong, or at least factually wrong. Not that keen. (laughs) Okay. Could be
1: here for a while.
0: That is true. I'm sure I'm about to say lots of things that some people are going to think are wrong. So (laughs) I think what I mean is, if I make a factual error that's demonstrably provable and goes beyond opinion into the realms of this is an actual fact, then yes, I would like to hear about that. (laughs) But if you disagree with my opinion about any of the things we talk about, then fine. Have your own opinion and enjoy it in your wrongness.
1: <laughs> Just back on the five star review for a second, as well. Yes, I enjoyed the use of the phrase "shabby mundanity" of why things go wrong. I thought that was absolutely beautiful.
0: It, there's a poetry there, isn't there? Mm.
1: Yeah, and I like that you can hear the weariness in their voices, <laughs> like two technology EOs recording a podcast.
0: I think we should change all our artwork. <laughs> I think maybe the clangor can retire and we can just have technology Eeyores instead. Maybe we've come up with a new name. I love being a technology Eeyore.
1: (laughs) I didn't realise I aspired to it until now.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That is a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Yes, thank you very much indeed for your very kind words that made our day. In fact, made several of our days. Yeah, indeed indeed because it made the day when we first read it and now it's making the day when we're talking about it is it time to talk about things
1: i think i get to talk about a thing first this time you
0: do it's your okay. turn to monopolize the airwaves as we monopolize call
1: it the airwaves <laughs> begin the monologue <laughs> yes <again>. begin the
0: <laughs> internal and something so
1: my thing is other development team roles so What do I mean by other development team roles?
0: That's an excellent question, which I was about to ask you.
1: So the summary that I put in was, uh, maybe paraphrasing here, but those who can save us from building a load of old rubbish expected by the highest paid person. (laughs) That's what I mean by other development team roles, because usually developers and testers aren't particularly capable of not building a load of old rubbish expected by the highest paid person.
0: That's interesting, actually, because isn't the highest paid person sometimes the person whose budget is funding the project?
1: Yeah. It doesn't mean they know what to do with it, though, does it? Well,
0: <laughs> quite evidently not. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we really shouldn't equate wealth with success or intelligence.
0: No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we could make some. Uh, we could come up with some examples, but probably yeah. best, best not.
1: Yeah. Um. So specifically, so how did this this interest come about in these other development team roles? So I would say I was fairly ignorant of design, uh, user research. There were things that were done over there, somewhere else. And usually, it was would be designers would come up with fantastical designs with a grand new vision, which would then take months and months to implement because you know it would be essentially a massive redesign of everything. <laughs> um, and then you'd be surrounded by lots of sad designers as you gradually try and eke your way through the simplest changes you could make. <laughs> So I was used to teams full of developers, testers, and maybe a business analyst, or some kind of analyst, usually a proxy for the product owner. And we just used to build stuff, big lists of stuff from long lists of requirements. And then these requirements would be years and years old sometimes, and we'd build this stuff and then it'd get released. And then uh, you would never hear of it again, whether or not it solved any problems, met any needs, or well, anything really. And I didn't really sort of question this too much. But then I guess I started to learn a bit more about the industry. There was a couple of links as well that I came across. It was one of Mike Cohen's blog about something like sixty odd percent of what you build is never used or rarely used. Sorry, I should I should uh, probably qualify (laughs) that. Yeah. So which struck me because I'd be like, well, have I been building lots of stuff and hardly any of it will ever be used, or somewhere between ten and thirty percent is actually going to be used on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. So wouldn't the world have been much better if we would have focused on that 10 to 30% and found out what that was rather than just working through the list of requirements?
0: (laughs) And maybe done it better as a result.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, so this stayed in the abstract for me until I went on a contract as a tester at the cooperative in Manchester. And the team was like nothing I'd ever seen. So it was full of user researchers, interaction designers, and technical writers. And then there was a couple of ops engineers and then there was just one developer and one tester, me. So there was like eight people and there was one dev and one tester. And I was like, what is going on here? This is like madness.
0: It sounds a bit like one of those scenarios where you have eight people standing around the developer or shouting things at them to do. I guess it didn't turn out like that.
1: No, no. It was all very respectful and (laughs) we spent, loads of time sort of sharpening what we were going to do, what we were going to build. Um, So whenever we did push code, it was with a, a relatively high degree of certainty that it was what the customer was going to use, what they would want to see. And it was just amazing to be surrounded by all these different roles.
0: It's making all sorts of things click together in in my head around design thinking, which uh, we talked about in a previous episode, Mm. and other stuff like that. But the idea that we should get together and make sure that we're solving the real problem and not some highest (laughs) paid person's idea of what the problem is. (laughs) I mean, that's really powerful, isn't it?
1: For me, it was quite transformative, really, in the way that I thought about what a team could be, what a development team could look like, rather than having... The other roles on the edges of things and the developers and testers being the sole focus, I think it really changed things.
0: Would it have been better, do you think those numbers worked? I'm just, I'm curious about the one developer because, I mean, I i have seen, I remember going to a hackathon once where there was quite a preponderance of people that weren't developers and there was a couple of examples where you saw people all standing in a row around, <laughs> around the poor developers saying, build this, no, build that, no, and that's a bit of a parody because there's obviously the problem of finding the right thing to build mm. and also... Uh, Part of that is the input of developers and and testers and other people who can understand how hard things are or how easy they are. Yeah. There is a kind of proportionate thing there. I'm just wondering, would it have been better, for example, if there were two developers or or something like that?
1: I think probably the nature of the the project at the time or the product at the time, because it was a brand new product. So the, the balance of having more researchers and more, say, ops people was probably a bit better but i think in the fullness of time once you know your operations were established then you might well change that blend but i guess it's like the overall balance is what you're looking at isn't it so the it's like traditionally the balance was way over the other side so you would have hardly any user research going on and lots of development going on yeah whereas maybe there's something in the middle that you need to find as an organization in order to help you to do that better and just build that that 10 to 30% of stuff that people actually want.
0: I spent some time in e-commerce environments and they always seem to have a lot of designers and researchers and people like that in those environments. Basically, they've got this very simple metric of do people buy more things <laughs> and the ability to have a really short feedback loop on that. And so quite a lot of it is actually devising what experiments to do yeah, and then executing them and then immediately making decisions and moving on and doing the next thing whereas in some other industries where maybe sometimes the outcomes are less clear Mm. it can be perhaps a, a longer loop and maybe people have less awareness of that
1: yeah yeah i think that's fair that kind of contrasts with subsequent projects that i've worked on since then especially in government contexts where you do have a lot more stakeholders that it's a bit more listy of mm-hmm. the things that need to be achieved because that's how things are planned. You know, rather than having like a long running product team, you've got a very projecty type mindset where it's like, well, we need all of these outcomes. Whereas in reality, you're working on it and you think, well, no, we don't. <laughs> we need to find the 10 to 30% of outcomes that will make the most difference. But because if you've got that sort of extra layers of management and people who are far removed from the work, mm. they're more interested in, and uh, and are um, incentivized by delivering the list rather than delivering the, the 10 to 30% of stuff that would make the most difference. So yeah, but still, I still think you can make gains in those environments as well. You can still make sure that you're doing user research. And I think in, in a lot of gov.uk projects that I've worked on, there's been a mm. lot of emphasis on user research as well within mm. the constraints of their sort of slightly strange... Project-based model, <laughs> but it's still—it's not an afterthought. I don't think. No,
0: no, and they have, of course, the government digital service and that whole methodology that has a lot of user research and and making sure you're giving the user of government services a good experience. Mm-hmm. And they have quite a lot of, or they did anyway. I, I, it's been a while since I've worked in those environments, but they had a lot of power to to change projects.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, certainly, certainly, one of the projects that I worked on was absolutely fantastic in that regard. The the closeness with the stakeholders was, was great, even though it was sort of multi-site, it felt like they were genuinely involved with the decision-making about what got built and what it looked like. And, um, you know, the research into how they work and what they're trying to achieve went into it as well. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of good there to bring those aspects into your development. I think naturally as well, if you do that, you start to shape things in a slightly more effective way, as in you start to build the things that, that matter the most in a way that complements how people work rather than, you know, foisting on features um, <laughs> onto, you know, people who are sometimes even in like the same building as you, I remember working on on something for a, a mortgage <laughs> admin company and literally the people who, who were going to use the thing were upstairs, but there was such a disconnect between the people who were building it and the people who were going to use it, <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't encouraged to go and bridge that divide either.
0: If you went up the stairs, it all went silent, and everyone looked at you, yeah, like going into the wrong pub.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Pool ball stopped over the pocket.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> so it was a really like transformative thing to to work on, and and kind of realise that these roles had like such a massive impact, and there was just constantly like building. Gradually increasing fidelity of prototype is probably how I would describe mm. it. Because again, it, it kind of teaches you that building something in code, testing it, deploying it, is a really expensive way to find out if someone wants it or not. It's like the most mm. expensive way to find out if someone wants it or not. So I just thought they were really skilled at finding out like what level of prototype was was like the best for the situation, whether or not it was just paper or Figma, I don't know if you've heard of Figma.
0: I've, I've got an account on it uh. and I occasionally use it. So yeah, I, look, I like Figurman. you
1: subscription, uh, subscription mania. Yes, um. that's
0: that's me. Mister <laughs> subscription, they call me. <laughs> I remember when I was first learning about design thinking and hearing people saying the best time to fail is when you're just screening up a post-it note and throwing it in the bin. Mm. The cost of that failure is five minutes of having that idea and then five minutes of knowing it's the wrong thing and then screen it up and putting it in the bin. Whereas, um... The wrong time to discover that is after your half a million pound development project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's a sort of sliding scale, I suppose, in between. I remember watching Google Ventures or somebody did a very good how to do paper prototyping hmm. video. Uh, it's like two videos. It's not a big watch, but it basically showed you how to build paper prototypes, how to use them. It is just a million times better to take someone through that experience when it's just a few bits of paper, yeah. than then going and, and actually building it. As you say, it's a, it's, that's very expensive. Mm. I'll include a link to that, those videos, yeah. yeah, because I think they're genuinely very, very good.
1: Yeah, because so I just remember, this is kind of, kind of all coming back to me now, <laughs> one of the first, first projects I actually worked on, we worked on it for like a year, a team of like 10 people, and it was quite stressful as well. It was an add-on for your bank account Hmm. for this particular company. I can't say too much. But it was released at the same time as when the PPI scandal really hit. Oh, dear. So banks then ceased to sell add-ons for accounts. Ah. So this thing that we spent a year on with this PPI scandal brewing in the background was absolutely... Well, I think I went and looked about a year later, and I think like two or three people had signed up for it. And it had literally cost millions. So, you know... Researching what's going on with your stakeholders, the payback is immense, absolutely immense,
0: <laughs> even what's the blinking industry that <laughs> that it's in
1: well yeah, yeah, quite i think yeah, I think I think it does go to that level as well, doesn't it? It's like what's happening in the industry you know um
0: yeah, just a- avoid the cost of building the wrong thing because yeah. if you actually look at that number that you started off with, was it something like seventy or eighty percent of of things built are the wrong thing yeah. in some way, yeah. if you could avoid building all of that and spend that money on building the right thing, how much better a place would the world be today in terms of software anyway?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a question of timing as well, isn't there? Because the problem with working through a list of requirements is that naturally that list starts to go out of date. Mm. So when you create the list, many of those things on the list might be the right thing, but then eventually they become the wrong thing. <laughs> because it's yeah. the wrong time for them or someone else has already done it or or whatever it is. So how do you then uh, how do you then account for that? Well you say rather than having a long list, let's have a short list. Um, and try and sharpen that short list as, as best as we can.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say if only there were some way of delivering things one after another rather than delivering a, a list in a giant release at the end of two years. Mm,
1: I don't have a way to do that, Ian. That would be
0: revolutionary, wouldn't it, if that if that could be done. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess the question that leaps to my mind is, Hmm. what I've been thinking about is what I just articulated there about, how do you make sure you're building the right thing? If you're an executive in a company, then you've probably got quite a lot of power to look at team composition and do all of that, that make those kind of changes. But on the other hand, what if you're in one of those teams that's building a wrong thing? I kind of wonder <laughs> I wonder if there's anything that someone in one of those teams can do. I mean, if if you're a developer, can you start doing paper prototypes and showing them to people and saying this is what this is what I'm going to build and getting their feedback? I mean, it seems like quite an ask. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure there's an answer to that. I think in the past it's usually got to the point where we've built the thing. Mm. One of the things that I did in the past was advocated for the ability to show your local environment on like a device it was in a mobile development context how do we show this like locally and then I can just go and grab the stakeholders and say oh hey this is what it's going to look like you know we've only done like a day's worth of development on it so far what do you think so Hmm. I guess my advice there is to try and like nudge it back a little bit just gradually try and move the feedback to the left as best as you can but I do agree that as an individual contributor on a team, it can then be hard to make the, the big changes, like you say, going all the way back to paper prototype. But I don't know. I think we ask for permission for these things far too much.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, that, yeah. That, that is very true. Yeah. We should be more pirate. Yeah, I think so. To cite the title of one of my favourite books.
1: I think so. I think sometimes in software development, we're a bit too passive with these things. And actually, we've got a lot more to give in terms of deciding what to build and how it would be most sensibly done rather than just accepting the big list and then trudging away through it
0: i remember having a philosophy of that i would trust the people that were doing that were thinking these things through and then having this kind of revelation at some point down the line of my career that actually A lot of those people are just making it up as they go along. (laughs) And you you can absolutely question. (laughs) I mean, they might not be very grateful to receive those questions. Some people are better at that than others, shall we say. But maybe the best thing to do is to just arm yourself with better questions and just be prepared to zoom out a bit and say, why? Why are we doing this? Why does it have to be like that? What's driving this? And if you find out that the answer is it's a requirement in an Excel spreadsheet that somebody wrote 18 months ago, then, you know, that's a very good thing to question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've worked on on, uh, projects relatively recently that said that they wanted six nines worth of reliability, for example, which is like, you know, a few seconds downtime every month or whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, that's, even in safety critical systems, like, you know, uh, aeroplanes and, monorails and things like that monorail you, you yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> we're mono
0: <laughs> not that we're obsessed with cartoons no no absolutely not
1: so yeah uh, but that was that was like down as a requirement and nobody had really sort of said anything mm. it's like it's gonna cost us like billions to get to six nines worth of uh, of, of reliability so you know let's let's ask the question because someone's just put a, someone's asked for a number and someone's put a number in there with like no idea what the the implications of that number actually are. It's like well yeah. we're gonna to need to work until the heat death of the universe in order to achieve that level of reliability. And then it'll be the heat death of the universe and you know It'll be down. We'll be back down to zero reliability <laughs> again.
0: Did I ever play you the NFR rap, Ash?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Oh, maybe I should include a link to that masterpiece. Oh yes. That uh, I, did, I didn't do the rapping bit because I'm me and that would be ludicrous. A
1: fantastically awkward rap. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Yo. One of my colleagues on a project I was working at when I was at IBM was a chap called Chris Casely Austin and he was claiming to be good at, at rapping. And I was like, oh, yeah, right," kind of thing. <laughs> and so I made him, I made him a little drum loop, and off he went, and came back with this amazing thing. But the question was, what should it be about? And our biggest headache at that time was trying to get the client to recognise that non-functional requirements were a thing, and that they needed to be quite clear about them, whether they're about their five nines or whatever it was <laughs> that, that they were after. Eight nines, And please. so. Yeah, nice. and so the NFR rap came into being, and is fairly entertaining. So I will, uh, I'll include a link to it. I'm quite proud of it, actually. Even though the hard bit was the rapping and the lyrics, which Chris did, I just did all the other things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you won't notice those. <laughs> generated a drum beat
1: on a loop, and
0: <laughs> well, you, have a listen, see what you think. Not you, Ash. Obviously, you've listened to it already. I've listened to it, yeah. Once is enough for anybody, isn't it? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I think as well. The technical writer role is hugely like overlooked mm. in development teams. And it's like, well, we all do our best to write sensible things into confluences and wikis and things like that. <laughs> As a contractor for the last, what, six, seven years, he relatively regularly changes roles and needs to pick up a new system mm. um, or a new technology or a new domain relatively quickly, most uh, absolutely impenetrable and you just end up having to spend most of your first few weeks trying to get everything up and running. So I think having a technical writer to help you to talk about like how to run your systems, yeah, and then also to put your systems in the context of the rest of the company and the rest of your domain would be absolutely immense.
0: Yeah, yeah. The skill required to do that, and to be able to be in the naive position of a user... To write down the things that that person needs to know to, to do the thing, yeah. You know, a developer of something has got almost no hope of being able to do that. No, we're just human and we can't.
1: And also, you you come at it from a, a point of view where there's a lot of assumed knowledge if you've built the thing and you've adapted to its its foibles as well. Yes, it always reminds me of trying to add automated uh, tests to systems that don't have them, <laughs> because essentially it just tips out all the strange things that those systems do, which you then need to work around in order to, to automate <laughs> what it does. And and it's kind of similar to me with technical writing as well, because it's just that, that act of tipping it all back out again and saying, well, actually, you're doing this really weird thing to work around this sort of slightly strange thing, and you're passing that on to your user as well. But a technical writer can help you tip all that stuff out as well. My final point on the other development team roles was that I read a book by the chap who founded a company called Menlo Innovations. I can't remember what it was called. I will, I will, we will link to it. Hmm. Um, and each team had a software anthropologist. Gosh. To go and find out about like their users and their history and what their stakeholders really wanted and deeply understand the context, which... I think it sounds to me like it would be a hard sell for most places to say, we need to hire some software anthropologists. <laughs> but I just, I just really like the idea. because so I think it describes a bunch of work that we do as technologists, which is never described anywhere else uh, by the role of like developer or tester or hmm. whatever it is. Because as a tester, most of the time you're discovering information and like curating it and putting it in some kind of sensible order that someone can understand and someone can make a decision out of so I think there must be some more novel ways we can describe the things that we do that go beyond what we currently call ourselves and give a bit more insight into what mm. development teams are actually all about because there's a lot more going on than programming and testing
0: well I think that's a really great note to complete on I also think that you should allow any user researcher to rename themselves, was it, a software anthropologist? Yeah. Because that, that will make people ask really interesting questions of them where they would get to explain what they do. Because people, when they hear a title a few times, people start to think they know what it is.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And it
0: might be an interesting way to get people to sort of say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> do I really understand this the way I think?
1: <laughs> yeah. Every time that I've worked on it, on a project which has involved some form of legacy code. I dread to use the term, uh, but a legacy application, as in something that makes money. I've always thought we need like a historian Mm. to understand the primary and secondary sources of this thing and what's true and what's not. Especially when someone says, well, we need to rebuild the thing. (laughs) Can't it just do the same thing as what the old one did? Yes. It's like, well, what did it do? Uh, no one knows. Everyone <laughs> has a thought, but as a tester, often you will go in and say, someone will say, this thing did this, and then you go and test it and you're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs>
0: yes. It is its own documentation. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think there's something there as well. I think there's just something about describing our roles slightly differently. Martin Hanea did a great talk about renaming testers in his organisation um, to... Uh, something along the lines of skilled investigators Mm. and it increased the engagement between the testers and the development the wider development function if you like Mm. by a great deal so i think that that one's definitely worth a watch as well so i think we should link to that one too
0: i think we should yeah that i have to say was a very very interesting thing thank you Ian. i enjoyed that Mm. me too
1: Sorry, I'll just clear my throat as well. I've actually been a bit, a bit growly.
0: I was just going to edit those together into the episode, the throat clearings. Just me. It
1: reminds me of um, the fast show, you know, uh, Bob Fleming. (laughs) Sorry, I know know it's not the nineties anymore. But sometimes it's hard to get over it, isn't it? You know what I mean?
0: I was listening to some live music yesterday and the introduction to one of the songs was, well, everybody knows this, it's been infused into your brain since you were born. And the song was Wonderwall. (laughs) Yes, it has. I just feel very old now because (laughs) it was quite a long time after I was born that it started being infused (laughs) into my brain.
1: At the, um, the Oakley Food Festival, usually they wait until everyone's had a few beers before they go with Wonderwall. But it was literally just like the second song. The second song. They were just like, you know that we're going to play this. You know, We know that you all want it. Let's just
0: get it out of the way.
1: So let's just do it and then it's done. And then we can all get on with our lives. I quite like that. <laughs> so it's time for Ian's thing. Ian, it is, why don't you introduce your thing?
0: It is time for my thing. Um, so I feel like I'm sticking my head a bit above the parapet with this thing because there are a lot of people with very strong opinions about it. A few weeks ago, a gentleman called Matthew Green, who's a professor at at a university in in the US, basically dropped the news that Apple were releasing, quotes, a client-side tool for CSAM scanning tomorrow. This is a really bad idea, unquote. Um, So just to unpack that a bit, the next day... After he, he posted that tweet, Apple released a page on their website. <laughs> it's all, it, all, it, all they've released so far has been some pages on their website about the topic of child safety. And in it, they announced three different things. And there was immediately an outcry among the privacy community. There were quite a lot of very strong reactions from privacy activists, are who, people who study this and care about it a great deal. And I thought it would be quite interesting to unpack it Mm. because it started off with a lot of hot takes about how this is the worst thing in the world ever. And some people are still quite strongly (laughs) of the view that it's a really terrible thing. But actually digging into it and figuring out what it actually is is really a big help in forming one's own view about it. So I thought if I go through and describe it a bit and then maybe we can have a a chat about it. Or you can just interrupt me. My, I'll you. My stream of consciousness. So this child safety announcement basically had three things in it. So one of them was that there's some updates to searching and Siri and things on devices, and they basically provide information and help in some way if they detect un, unsafe quotes unquote situations for children or related to child safety. And no one really seems to be at, taking any issue with that, or at least not that I've I've seen. And then they released another feature which is entitled Communication Safety in Messages. If you've got an Apple device like a phone or something like that and you're part of a family that's been set up in iCloud so that you can buy things with your parents' credit card, things like that, (laughs) then if somebody sends you a message in Messages that the on-device machine learning thinks might be, shall we say, inappropriate, then instead of seeing that image you'll be presented with a thing that says, look, we think this might be an inappropriate image. You don't have to look at it. We can just ignore it and move on. And the child can then say, well, I want to look at it anyway. And if they say that and they're under 13, then the response from the app will be, well, okay, but if you do, we're going to tell your parents. And if you're over 13, then that doesn't happen.
1: So it's just like a, a pause. If you're over 13, it just says, are you sure you want to do this? And you, you say yes or no, basically. Yeah. No one will be any the wiser. Yeah.
0: It's actually 12, not 13. Okay. So young younger children, their parents can be notified if they say, yes, I want to look at this anyway. I think people had some concerns about it, maybe. It seems like it's attracting a lot less higher from people than the third thing, yeah. which is what I will now come to, and that is CSAM detection. CSAM stands for Child Sexual Abuse Material, so obviously we're talking about something that's quite horrible and also very much illegal. So Apple's CSAM detection will be rolled out in the United States at the moment. There's no indication of it being rolled out anywhere else, but obviously the chances are that they will expand it as they do other things that they introduce into the US. So what the CSAM detection feature actually does is that for images that are going to be uploaded to Apple's iCloud Photos, at the point of upload, your device will hash the image and compare the hash with a list of known existing CSAM material that will be installed on your phone as part of the operating system Mm -hmm. and the result of that match is put in an encrypted envelope that is sent to iCloud photos along with your image. So every image that you upload, at the point of upload, will be given one of these cryptographic safety tokens, I think, that they're being referred to. And there is actually quite a lot of information about this now. Apple have released a technical overview of it that is, is quite detailed about how it works. And there is some cryptographic threshold whereby after 30 of these, or some threshold number, which I believe is around 30, have been uploaded into your iCloud photos, then Apple become able, because you've supplied them with sufficient cryptographic keys for it, to be able to then flag this number of images to a human reviewer at Apple. And if it turns out that they do match the CSAM material, then your account gets frozen and you are reported to law enforcement. Right. And there's a few concerns with this. Hmm. One of them is that governments might pass laws that allow them to force Apple to add other images to the List of CSAM. So, for example, we know that Apple has had to make a lot of accommodations with the Chinese government, and it's particularly beholden to China because its manufacturing basically occurs there. So, they've got something of a weak negotiating position with the, with the government there. Yeah. For example, iCloud services in China are all, are all hosted in China, and the government have access to the cryptographic keys. Yeah. and that's an accommodation that Apple's been forced into by the law in china and so if the chinese government came along in some future where this scanning was rolled out in china and said well we really don't like the the tank man image from yeah. the Tiananmen square yeah. massacre we need to know if people have that in their icloud photos then that would obviously start to be a very tricky situation
1: yeah because the um, the tool is agnostic of the topic isn't it
0: yes and i think that's a really key point to make
1: the tooling it's being applied in a child safety context, but it's that's not what it's about. It's about recognising, it's about comparing the hashes of images. That's what the tool does. It mm. All the process around it is the is what happens, is the effect on child safety. The tool is, is agnostic of child safety.
0: Exactly. And I think a lot of concerns that privacy activists have got about all sorts of these kind of things is that governments often hoist the twin specters of child abuse and terrorism, which we can both agree are horrible yeah. things. But they attach these agnostic, as you put it, intrusive surveillance technologies to these things, yeah. and then they conflate the argument of these technology things are bad to you must therefore support terrorism and child abuse. Yeah. <laughs> And that is a logical fallacy, I suppose, that you see a lot of when you look into the relationship of government surveillance and technology together. You see a lot of this, and one response to this CSAM matching thing that Apple are doing is that actually, if you upload your photos into various other providers like Google and Facebook and all the rest of them, they're all routinely already scanning mm. photos for these these for these matches and Facebook, I think, reported something like 220,000 cases last year, you could argue that the scanning is actually everybody's doing it already. So why are we having a go at Apple for doing this same thing? And the answer that comes back to that is that actually that's being done on cloud servers. And what is offending, I think, people's ethical stances on these things is that actually this is an example where your device is doing it. So, your device is the one that's making the match and then encrypting it and uploading it. Yeah. And so people are using phrases like Apple is scanning your phone for materials and all this kind of thing, which sounds, I think, actually worse than what's actually happening. And Apple have had to roll out a lot more explanations and this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it and why would you think that kind of interviews because actually it's a pretty gray area.
1: And and as you said about Apple's manufacturing base being in China, they are influenceable.
0: Yes, the way that they've made it work does make it kind of tricky for governments to do this kind of stuff.
1: So big tech solutions to nuanced problems are often... You know, using the nuclear warhead to hammer the nail in, right?
0: Yeah, because everything they do has to work at such enormous scale that yeah, it's very hard to adapt to individual cases or situations. Yeah. In a nuanced way.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think in order to even if their their intentions are, are true in terms of protection of whichever group of people they wish to protect, then we're all part of that process, aren't we? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So basically, we all have to use it within those constraints. We all have to use their applications within these constraints. Scanning on the device, I think, upsets me less than than everything being uploaded and server-side scanned. Because at least then you can turn off the synchronization if you wish to, you know? To me, my privacy rights feel like they're more protected by client-side scanning than server-side scanning.
0: I think that's something that's on Apple's mind because at the moment, Apple could scan your iCloud Photos image server-side because while their their encryption is good and they they have encryption at rest, they have the keys. Hmm. One theory that is being talked about is Apple want to have more protection in terms of end-to-end encryption where they don't have the keys. And so this mechanism would still work even if they stopped having the keys to be able to decrypt your iCloud photos. So they could actually make those end-to-end encrypted so that Apple had no access to your photos. Yeah. And this way of scanning, if Apple decided to extend their end-to-end encryption, then this mechanism would still work, yeah. uh, which I think is probably something that's on their mind when people say oh your device is being scanned by Apple I mean that's Mm. just really an overstatement of what's happening what's happening is that at the time when your photo is uploaded to iCloud then it compares it to a list and uploads the result of the comparison but that's not quite the same as scanning your phone and if you turn off iCloud photos no scanning happens at all that's something that a privacy activist can decide to do if they don't like this approach but some people have a very visceral reaction to the idea their phone isn't entirely doing things that are just for them, mm. and I, I guess I kind of understand that. I don't have that visceral reaction to it. No, it sounds like neither do you.
1: No, no. All of this tech, whether it be Apple or Google or Facebook, we enter into a well, a literal contract, and
0: that we never read.
1: Yeah, but then there's like the social and financial contract as well. For me, it's easy to look at the nature of the company and how they behave, because we know that obviously Google prioritizes having more and more data in order to target things at you. Let's say um, they can be beneficial as well, but you know that's kind of a lot of their, yeah, a lot of their thinking. Um, so and Facebook are probably pretty similar as well. They wish to market things to you. Um, yeah, that's what keeps their platform going. So I. I I understand the nature of these, these platforms and what they're trying to do and treat them as such. Um, and with Apple, I think it's kind of similar as well. You know, Apple obviously have their biases mm, and for sure. I will only provide them the data that I wish them to have. You know, I, I don't do photo syncing with Apple. You, get, you still get to choose. And I feel like with Apple, at least, you get more ability to choose what gets harvested from you. Whereas with the other platforms, I feel like it's more done implicitly. Whereas with Apple, you have to be much more explicit with allowing permissions to do things. Mm. So the example was the tracking, wasn't it, for each of the apps recently. You open an app and it's like, this app would like to track your journey. Yeah. And it tells you that and says, you can either say, okay, you can turn it off for this app, but not for other apps, or you can turn it off for all apps and never be asked again whether or not you want to be tracked (laughs) and just always say no, which, and that speaks to me as like, that's a good indicator of Apple's intent because they're saying to you, we can ask you this question once. And if you say, never ask me again and never track me again, that's what the device will do. Whereas I'm not convinced all the other platforms really behave in that way. So I think there's much more transparency with the Apple way of doing things than there is with say the Facebook or Google way of doing things.
0: I think that's right, and I think fundamentally Apple makes a very great amount of money by charging a lot for a device. No doubt, it makes huge amounts of money, and they are much more expensive than the alternatives. But then, equally, the alternatives are partly funded by this data contract, this actual and employed contract with google that you will share your data and photos with them and they will get benefit from that they will mm-hmm. be able to target ads to you but they will also be able to use those things for training their machine learning models they'll be able to understand relationships between you and other people. you know there's all sorts yeah. of stuff that they can do with that data that apple has sort of closed its own doors to not do that yeah. i think apple's overall intent and it's it's supported by that business model of we 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 will charge you more, but your device will be much more on your side, perhaps, than maybe some other platforms. Yeah. Interestingly, the openness of Android means that if you buy a Pixel, you can actually install extra secure versions of of android that people have developed Mm. that that take out a lot of the google services and things like that so if you have a real need for privacy i think there are people who live in oppressive regimes and all the rest of it yeah yeah governments always think that people who live in repressive regimes should be allowed to have privacy but just people that live in their well liberal liberal country should not have it yeah But, but you know people who really need that it is available. And I guess if I was in that situation, maybe I would be looking at an Android phone with one of those, you know, more niche versions of of Android installed on it. I think on the whole, I trust Apple more than the others. And I kind of have this feeling about Apple being the the big baddie. Because in the 90s, Microsoft was the big baddie. Hmm. And I remember resisting them fiercely and trying to use linux for things and <laughs> managers going what's this open source power you're with <laughs> doing that and all, all of those discussions but i remember in the, in the 90s microsoft was the evil empire and i think in many people's way of thinking especially younger people people who were the age i now that i was in the 90s apple is that evil empire yeah and i find that quite difficult to sort of internalize Because I think fundamentally, Apple is far from a perfect, no organisation is perfect. Certainly not a capitalist megacorp is going to be not perfect. And I've been reading some disturbing stories about the way some people have been treated there and stuff like that. But very broadly, I feel as though they're probably the least worst of the the very big tech companies. Yeah. The the the, fangle. It's
1: a question of participation, isn't it? Uh, it's like well, yeah. rightly or wrongly, the world has been very difficult to participate in without the influence of these large tech companies. Mm. A way to cope is to look at them and their behaviours and decide what fits with your own your own model, yeah, you know, and how you think about the world. If I speak to someone who isn't necessarily in a technology role, and you talk about the balance of convenience and privacy, um, a lot of people are into the convenience.
0: Yeah, really, and,
1: and could. Could care a lot less about the privacy.
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: And they say, literally, say things like, I've got nothing to hide. It's like, okay, then. I think sometimes in tech, it gets a bit navel gazy. <laughs> no. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that could never happen. <laughs> so I understand like the, the wider implications, but there's also more than one uh, point of view at play here as well. Absolutely. In terms of child safety. If all these platforms had total privacy and total encryption then they won't make any money so they wouldn't exist and you would have no way of getting a handle on any of these safety issues that exist in the world so no indeed yeah so it's completely imperfect one thing i found interested in was the so the actual hash of the image it could be a partial as well couldn't it
0: well it absolutely is yeah
1: yeah so you could Having your picture taken somewhere, and then the tank man from Tiananmen Square is in a picture behind you, Mm. and that would become, say, if uh, sort of worst authoritarian nightmares come true, and that would get flagged to the relevant authorities, and someone would turn up and take you away.
0: Well, so that would have to happen at least 30 times before you pass the (laughs) threshold,
1: and then (laughs) maybe it was in my favorite restaurant or something, you know,
0: and then a human in Apple would be looking at it to make sure before it was flagged to law enforcement. So actually, I think there are reasonable safeguards before you get to there. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. And people have been playing with a version. So the algorithm is very interesting, the neural hash algorithm, because obviously you could hash the image file, but then if someone changed so much as a byte in it, yeah it would no longer match the hash so they've got a thing called neural hash which is really comparing going into machine learning speak features of the image yeah and so it's quite interesting to see the hash that it comes up with might be quite similar if the image has been altered or made black and white or or you know in some way fiddled with to try and make it unrecognizable but people have configured GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks, mm. to try and generate images that match a neural hash thing without actually being that, the image of that thing. Yeah. So one attack is we'll make sure your phone ends up with all these pictures on that, that trigger this hash algorithm. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. E- even
0: though they're not a picture that, that is of those kind of terrible, illegal things. Yeah. So I guess it's far from perfect. I mean, Apple have seen the examples of this. Said no, this is not the same as our algorithm, but there is a slippery slope here, you know, and it's not perfect. And so I think Apple have put in place reasonable safeguards, yeah, but that there are all manner of things to worry about in it, and you know maybe yeah. they're just rolling it out with this comparison list of image hashes that come from a child safety organisation in in the US, hmm. and it's just being rolled out to the US, and they've got all these safeguards in place but you have to ask yourself how steep that slippery slope is and they have made it hard i think for governments to abuse it but it still doesn't doesn't seem impossible
1: the tool is agnostic of the topic yeah apple is a company and therefore not incorruptible if if they are threatened with lack of access to a market based on the conditions of this tool and what it looks for so when you decide whether or not you wish to engage with it keep those two things in mind and also the fact that even though it's a nuclear weapon <laughs> to solve a, a scalpel's problem protecting vulnerable users on the internet and vulnerable groups is really yeah. important so balance those two things in your head and say well you know what does this mean to me how does that appeal to you know to my sense of values and then make your decision from there if you want like ultra security like you say you can go get yourself an an android phone which is not built by google and then install super secure versions of Android on there and then get yourself messaging applications where you have the keys to decrypt mm. your message because they exist. All these things are available to you. I would say also to the average non-technical person, that particular world is not that available to them.
0: No, and they probably wouldn't They wouldn't like being there either because it would be inconvenient.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think in tech, we also need to consider... That we're not the only people who are going to be using this,
0: and not everybody has a choice.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And people have made the convenience and privacy trade-off. They've made it, and rightly or wrongly, they accept it. Whether or not you agree as a technology security person or not, they've made. Yeah, it.
0: I think that there are some there are some really great nuanced discussions going on about this, mm. and also a lot of frothing rage. Yeah. I'll include some links. We'll, we'll include some links in the show notes to to some some of the uh, discussion that goes on. Uh, I've actually made yeah. quite a lot of notes myself, which maybe I'll just share the whole lot mm. into the show notes because, um, <laughs> as you can possibly tell, it's a very deep and uh, confusing topic. It would be very easy for me to make a mistake or say something wrong, so I'll include all of that. We'll include all of that in in the notes.
1: Yeah. Well, with many of these things, yeah. Just look at your own values and see what you want out of it and whether or not you agree with it rather than... The problem with hot takes is that they're either um, far too hot, as in far too soon, and non-nuanced takes. Um, So they're either overly uh, enthusiastic or overly um, negative about a particular change. (laughs) Whereas this one, I agree. I think there's a lot of nuance to it. Absolutely. I prefer to make up my own mind.
0: We'll now wait for the people with the torches and pitchforks to show up outside my house (laughs) so that's two things two things two great things I really enjoyed that yes I think uh, we might get some feedback for this one
1: (laughs) I'm trying to put more enthusiasm into my voice as well after the weariness comment in the five star review yes I'm not weary honestly (laughs) I am I mean (laughs) I'm not weary of the world of software (laughs) development I'm not not overly cynical about the shabby mundanity of it all (laughs)
0: No comment from Ian there. Yes, no
1: comment from in there. <laughs> <laughs> so are we going to do the live streaming? Oh.
0: Yeah, that's a really good thing to remember. It's almost as though yeah. we'd made a list in order to remember the things we were going to say.
1: <laughs> and It's almost like I'm looking at the list.
0: I can talk or look at the notes, but not both at the same time. We have a capability in our software that we use to record these episodes to live stream them and so we just wondered if anyone would be interested in us doing that and if you are tweet to us and then we will take steps to try and live stream the next episode where it makes sense to do so anyway
1: yeah you get to see the as it happens how all the opinions are formed spilled (laughs) edited out (laughs) and edited out (laughs) into the smooth sounding podcast
0: (laughs) we like to think it's smooth sounding yeah Yeah, so let us know if you would be interested in us doing that i don't want to do it just for the sake of it but if people are interested then you may be worth putting in the additional labor to make sure that people know when when we're going to do the recording so they can join us that would be awesome that would be awesome no heckling will be allowed obviously uh, any heckling will be subject to immediate termination of your connection but
1: yeah yeah You'll be muted and we yeah, won't look yes. at
0: the chat. <laughs> we'll plough on regardless.
1: We're <laughs> zero feedback. Yes. Environment. <laughs> yes. To be fair, a five-star review is the kind of feedback that I'm into. Yes. So, you know. If you've got anything to say, leave a five-star review.
0: Yes. We've got a webpage at whatalotofthings.transistor.fm. You can subscribe there on pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Is our website interesting for any other reason? No, not yet. It's got all our episodes on. One. And little bios and things like that.
1: That's interesting enough.
0: Possibly. We don't want to push it over the edge of interestingness into whatever's beyond... Into the trough of disillusionment. (laughs) Yeah. that, That trough of disillusionment.
1: Yeah. Been there.
0: So, thank you for listening.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much, everyone.
0: We've got more things, so we will be back. But I'm not saying when, because... We don't say when. We all know... That leads to disaster. Well, okay. Slight embarrassment. That
1: leads to a two-year
0: lead time. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I've learned my lesson. Okay. See you next time.
1: See you next time.